to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today, we have with us Jose Anser, partner at Optimal Counsel and author of the influential Silicon Hills Lawyer blog. Jose, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Can you tell us a little bit about your background to start us off? Sure. Graduated from Harvard Law about, what is it, 11, 12 years ago. And I knew in law school, I wanted to work with startups and emerging companies. Thankfully, HLS had uh, courses um, specialized in that area. Moved to Austin, um, worked in big law for a little over two years. Uh, left to join a small boutique. Everyone said it was a terrible idea to do it, particularly as a, as a third year, but I kind of just had an inkling to do something a little different from the conventional route. Spent about nine years at this boutique, a little close to nine years, and over time recruited most of the partners and associates, built out a lot of infrastructure for training people. And, and I mean, one of the beauties of boutiques is having the freedom to experiment with different tools and processes and such. Yeah, uh, Jose, I see that you're, you're CTO, which is yeah. kind of interesting because most of us think of CTO as a, more of a staff position than a, uh, a partner stepping in. Well, I mean, I, I think that's one of the problems with some, uh, with some firms is, is treating other positions as sort of, you know, lowly, right? And, and not seeing <laughs> the, uh, the strategic value of someone who can sort of know the substantive legal stuff and how to integrate it with technology. I mean, I'm very much a techie, what you might call a digital native. Um, mm -hmm. And I had a lot of fun, especially through my blog, getting to know legal tech entrepreneurs as they kind of went up and, and built different things. And, and so over time, we built out our boutique practice, probably became known as one of the top boutiques in the ECVC space if you, if you didn't want to do big law. A few months ago, about 12 lawyers now, soon to be 14 or 15, uh, left that firm and have joined this, this new firm everyone's building called Optimal. But it's still very much the same proposition we had before, which is, look, I mean, in, in the tech VC space um, and CPG, we do CPG work. If you, if you do enough startup work, you always hear about Cooley, Gunderson, Fenwick, Wilson. There's like, there's like 10 firms that always come up, right? Great, great firms, um, you know, very specialized. But I, I think the thesis of a lot of boutique firms is, is not that they don't have a place in the market, but that they've just overshot a lot of what a lot, particularly emerging companies need. I mean, $1,000 an hour for a partner, $500 an hour for a first year, I think now, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think the value prop of our firm and lots of boutiques today is, hey, there are lots of companies out there that don't need armies of $1,000 an hour lawyers. They need sharp counsel. They need teams. They certainly probably are, are too big for a, a solo but boutiques can offer that same caliber and specialization, but you know, at five hundred dollars an hour, or five fifty, as opposed to a thousand, right? For a partner, right? For a, for a partner, right? As opposed to a first year, and and yeah. so, and I think you know, so part of the value prop for boutiques is is the lower rates, and another thing I think that that's very natural is 
You know, lots of clients will hire these bigger firms and, and they can just tell that they're struggling to get attention from the partner or the senior associate, right? Because those lawyers have IPOs and SPACs and billion dollar acquisitions and good for them, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but but if you're a if you're a seed stage or series A founder who just got their five million or ten million dollar term sheet, to, to to a big law lawyer, that may be small potatoes. But to you, it's like there's your children and there's that term right. sheet, right? Yeah. Um, and you want it might be something a big law a big law partner just kind of leaves it to the second year associate to handle. Yeah, by yeah. I mean, so. we and, and again, not saying everyone does that. I think different firms, different partners operate differently. But we have a lot of clients that that choose us or move to us because they're like, look, I can tell that they're great lawyers at this big firm, but I'm just I'm going to be small potatoes to them until I'm a Series C company, right? Right. Um, and I think I think boutiques can really deliver in that space. Well, great. You mentioned a couple of acronyms, and for our audience, ECVC. Why don't you, yeah. you tell folks what that stands for? Emerging companies in venture capital. Um, so emerging I would, companies kind of a nice way to say startup. Startup, right? I mean, the startup thing can you know people? I mean, there's unicorns now, billion dollar companies right. that refer there that have have thousands of employees and are still startups because <laughs> the founders still wear Birkenstocks, right? I don't know. When I send them a bill, they say, "Oh, we're just a startup." Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, even though we have $100 million in revenue. But yeah, I mean, typically when you hear about an ECVC lawyer, it's a corporate and securities lawyer, right? That's kind of the bigger umbrella, but further specialized in venture capital, startups, technology, that kind of stuff, sort of a a niche sub-specialty of corporate and securities. And Jose, how long have you been doing the blog? Oh, 10 years now. I mean, I, I started it as a as like I think a second year, maybe a first year. I've all, I mean, I was a, I was a philosophy major in college as, as well as economics. I love writing and sort of deep thought. And and at the time, I remember people being like, "Oh, that's cute," you know, like and, and enjoy your diary, right? But it's 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 turned out to be a great way to meet all kinds of people. Legal tech entrepreneurs read it. Founder CEOs read it. Other kinds of lawyers. I mean, even even law schools have reached out to me saying they use some of the posts in their curricula, right? So it's it's been it's been really fun. I mean, I don't think blogs are for everyone, but for certain kinds of people, it's a great way to to build a network. Oh, it's been a wonderful resource over the years, Jose. And I'm sure there's a ton of people just like me who go to your blog for um, uh, for advice. So kudos to you. Let me ask you about the name Silicon Hills. I know you were in Austin before. Where are you now? For, for I was in Austin for a long time, um, for about seven years. I mean, I grew up in Houston, went to UT for undergrad, then went to Harvard, and then moved back. I, w- I met my wife at UT Austin. Silicon Hills is a term. But back in the day, it was Silicon. Everything was trying to be Silicon Valley was Silicon something. Silicon Beach right. is LA. Silicon Slopes is Utah, right? Um, yeah, in New York, Silicon, it was Silicon Alley. Silicon, Silicon Alley, Alley, that's right. And and, and and Austin was Silicon Hills, and so that was the name that I chose. And I kept it because I just don't want to change the name. Even though Matt now maybe like I live in Colorado, so Silicon Mountain lawyer <laughs> might be more, yeah. more appropriate, right? Not to say I've, I've been to Austin. I mean, I know there's a lot more hills in Denver than there are Austin. Yeah, well, it's the hill country, right? Like slightly outside of of Austin, there's lots and lots right. of hills. I mean, you know, yeah. compared to other places of the country, you know, the geography is not super beautiful, but it's, I think it's the prettiest part of Texas, if you ask me. 
All right. Sounds good. Well, let's go right into it. So let, let, let's talk about financing options for early stage companies. And um, in general, in this program, we talk about, uh, as we know, as VC funded uh, uh, companies. I'm going to talk a little bit. I mean, we'll probably discuss sort of the boom or bust mentality of VC funding and, and the like and any kind of issues with that. But uh, let's talk about if a startup goes to you and they talk about, hey, we think that we have uh, some good angel angel investors, and we're anticipating rounds of VC funding. So, what what what's kind of your initial reaction to that in terms of funding options that they have? What questions would you ask them? Yeah, so I mean, first off, I would ask, who are these angels, right? Because e- even before angels, you sometimes or actually often have what you would call a friends and family round, right? And friends and family rounds can be actual family um, who hopefully are accredited investors, right? Because that certainly simplifies the structure, but but if you know, in a friends and family round can look a little bit like a typical angel or seed round, but slightly differently, right? So, so I would say in the earliest rounds, putting aside equity, you know, a preferred stock financing, which typically is a little bit larger of a round, you know, a few million dollars at least. Convertible notes and safes are sort of like the the two big options in the startup world, and a safe. The SAVE simple agreement for future equity was invented by Y Combinator years ago, right? But it's sort of changed a lot over time. A a SAVE is basically a convertible note with no maturity and no interest, right? Right. And it used to be when we represented investors, I wouldn't let clients invest through a SAVE because it didn't give them any kind of claim on the company. It was much better to have a convertible note. And then eventually that changed and it became like the SAVE was not only West Coast, it just kind of spread everywhere. And now it's sort of uh, hard to convince someone to go uh, with a note. Um, Otherwise, at least in my experience, people think it's more complicated than it is. And I know that you, you know, we both know a few years ago, the Y Combinator safe change. Yes. Uh, before we get to that, though, the friends and family round, do you give them common stock, Jose? Or are you still like- No, them? I mean, what, what I typically say is a convertible, I mean, a friends and family round is usually only a few hundred thousand dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unless it's, you know, a, a serial entrepreneur, they may they might raise a million or two because right. they they know some really wealthy friends and family, right? <laughs> you know, but, uh, but it's typically a convertible note or a safe, but the difference is- in a friends and family round, you often don't have a sophisticated investor available to sort of price the round properly, right? right. Um, usually with true angels, you'll have a valuation cap of some sort, right? I mean, there, there you can do uncapped convertible notes and saves, which are just a discount. But I think as both of us know, un- unless it's like literally a top 1% hot company, uncapped saves and notes just don't work for many investors because it's sort of like, give me your money and three years from now, I'll get a 20% discount on whatever those people pay. That's not a very good deal. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 So, so, so valuation caps dominate amongst angel round notes and saves, but in a friends and family round, how how would you set the cap? Right. Because you don't, you, no one knows what the price is. So what we typically do is tweak an uncapped, convertible note or safe. So we said, so typically in a note or safe, there's a discount to the future equity round, which may happen in two or three years, right? Whatever your first equity money pays, you'll get 20 or 30% off. What we've done for, and I have some of these templates on my blog, a friends and family safe or note, is apply that discount concept to a valuation cap, right? And so 
you, you're and, it, and what it does is it, it reassures your friends and family you're the earliest money. You're, you're going to get the best price, but it actually punts on the valuation. We don't know what the valuation cap will be yet. So in your angel round, if you give your angels in a year from now a safe with a $5 million cap, if you give a, if you have a 20% discount, we'll, um, we'll then amend and restate your friends and family safe to have a $4 million cap. Right. Oh, that sounds that sounds interesting. Can you explain a, 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 again how that works, Jose? So instead of, I mean, tip, uh, in a typical safe, as we know, the discount rate is 10, 20%, something like that. And then you have a valuation cap and usually it's either or, right? Whatever yeah. it's going to be. Better. Yeah, the, the investor gets the lower of the discount on the, on the equity round or what the valuation cap would produce as the price. Yeah, and when we first started practicing, you probably had the same experience as me, where valuation cap was really set fairly high to uh, uh, prevent this idea of kind of a runaway valuation. And then somebody has like you know 0.002 percent of the company, and they thought they were getting more. And then over time, now people see valuation cap as just a step in for valuation, which is uh, you, you know not I think, how it was I think that's right. I think most companies would say that the, that the valuation. I mean, I think it varies. You know, it, and you know, depends on the context. There's no universal standard, as we know, even though people love to talk about the word market and standard all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, whatever they're doing is market and whatever everybody else is doing. <laughs> exactly, is right? Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that today, most valuation caps, it's, it's a proxy for what, what the valuation is at the time of closing. Yeah. So tell us again how, how you do it for friends and family with the discount rate affecting the valuation cap. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, like, let, let's say my first round is a $3 million valuation cap. And my next round is a $5 million valuation cap, right? In a typical convertible note or safe, the discount, the 10, 20% applies only to an equity round. And right. as we know, you might have one, two, three sets of convertible notes or safes before you get to the, especially because equity rounds keep kind of going later. Like today's right. seed equity is like yesterday's series A, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. but, but rarely do you see in a convertible note or safe a discount on a future valuation cap, not not a, not an equity round price, but a valuation cap. It's turning yeah, so, into another convertible, basically. So you're getting the benefit of a simple instrument, a convertible note or safe. You know, as you know, they're super easy typically to, to execute because there's like one or two variables. Yeah. And what the discount does is let your friends and family know, like, hey, your money is coming in a year before my true angels, right? Or my true seed round, you should get the lowest price. But because I have no angels here right now, I don't really know what that price should be, right? Right, yeah, yeah. I don't even know what the cap should be, yeah. Yeah, and so it allows you to, to say, okay, well, whatever my angels price me at as a valuation cap in a year or two from now, I'll give you a 20% discount on that. So we, you know you're getting the best deal for taking the most risk, but we're not gonna sit here and just, you know, Put our finger to the air and, and set a valuation when we just we don't know what right. it should be. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds good. I mentioned that a couple of years ago, the Y Combinator safe changed dramatically. Yes. Uh, Jose, yes. you have written, ex I don't know if you've written extensively or maybe you've just written a couple of posts that are extremely popular and everybody keeps going back to. But for yeah, the listeners, they, they, they get a good have, amount of volume for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. So why don't you talk a little bit about that and how, how sure. it changed? So, you know, 
as you rightly said, when the safe first came out, the, the, the original safe, Y Combinator was a fairly young institution, right? Um, mm-hmm. and they were not what Y Combinator is today. It was and a bunch so, of ex-founders, bunch of ex-founders. Yeah, and, 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 so, and so their brand very much was about being what we, what we often hear, founder-friendly, right? They were sort of like the much, much friendlier alternative to a typical VC, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that environment, they wanted to propose the safe as a investor unfavorable, company slash founder favorable instrument. Well, what is the, the best way to make a convertible note as company friendly as it could possibly be? Zero maturity and zero interest. Right. right. Yeah. 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 No maturity. Basically, ha- yeah. hand me your money and, <laughs> and, and hope, hope for the best. Right. right. Yeah. 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 You know, um, and, and in that environment, granted, in Silicon Valley, the safe became, the original safe became pretty popular. Because Silicon Valley is this unique world, there's hundreds of VCs constantly competing in a very small geographic area. The nature of that that market dynamic slants always to founders, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, New York, Austin, Seattle, Denver, other places, it's not that hyper competitive. And so, so investors would look at this instrument and their lawyers would be like, why on earth would I ever fund this, right? Right. Uh, we, we, we used to add a maturity date. Too, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, really and, I, and I think there's some balance to that, right? I mean, I, look, I represent zero VCs. I, mm-hmm. I actually, part of my brand is I'm a very much a company focused person. And I think the maturity date has value for accountability, right? So mm-hmm. as long as it's set reasonably, three years, maybe two years, mm-hmm. it's like, look, if you haven't made things happen by then, at least it forces a conversation. But, but, so, but so, so the original pre-money safe, reflected that desire for YC to be super company friendly. But incentives change, people change, right? You know, fast forward five, 10 years, YC is this enormous organization with very deep ties to the vent, the vent, the same venture capital community at once was trying to kind of, you know, disrupt in a way. And 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 so they changed the safe. And so what I've written about is how the, the new safe, the post-money safe, is dramatically different from a pre-money, right? And and there are a number of reasons why it is, but the most important is is that the valuation cap is now on a post-money basis, right? right? And the post-money includes any future rounds of financing up until an equity round. And so so basically, you're you're promising your investors in a post-money safe full anti-dilution Right, you you will not be diluted until I do an equity round, which could be years from now. So, say right? somebody has a company raises six million dollar valuation cap, and then after the six million dollar valuation cap, they manage to raise two million dollars after yeah. that, still in convertibles. So, what would happen? What would happen yeah. then? In that case, the way that the the conversion ultimately is calculated, you you effectively promise the six million cap save people a percentage of the cap table. And the 2 million that you raised after is not changing that percentage at all. It is being completely absorbed by the common stock, which to me is crazy, right? Right. I I mean, in in all other structures we've seen, convertible notes, pre-money safes, including equity rounds, 
once you raise money, dilution is shared, you right. know, for future rounds. But but to to have this instrument that you know all future dilution until conversion is is borne by the common stock by the founder. I mean, I, I've seen founders get seriously wiped out. Um, mm. not understanding how this works. Now, granted, there are a few scenarios in which a post-money safe may make sense. Um, but I think the bigger problem is that the, the YC pre-money safe built this brand of being the standard, most company-favorable instrument. And, and founders know that and Google YC safe and go to the YC website, and they don't understand just how different this new post-money safe is, and it ends up harming them. Right. It can be hard to find the previous safe. You really well, got to do some googling. You have yeah. it on your. You have it on your blog. I have. And, I have uh, it on my blog. And again, I mean, look, YC is a great organization. You know, I think they do a lot of good. But I, one thing I write about on my blog a lot is conflicts of interest and misaligned incentives. Right? Mm -hmm. Is that on the one hand, the investor community has a strong incentive to brand itself as founder friendly and company friendly because it's like they're. They're competing. They're they're competing against other investors, right? But founders need to understand the whole point of having advisors without conflicts of interest is because, I mean, at the end of the day, YC makes a lot of money by having an instrument that doesn't that protects it from dilution. Right, and it seemed to coincide with them greatly expanding their class as well. The cohort seemed to, uh, they were very small at first, and now it's like four hundred companies or something like that. So it's, it's yeah, enormous. yeah. I mean, I mean, look, it's 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 very much sort of like the same story of a startup, right? Mm -hmm. this, when startups first start out, they're founder led. They have a certain they have a certain pirate mentality, you know that you know. But once that startup has five thousand people and its professional CEOs running it. It's a different culture. It's a different mindset. And I'm not saying that's happened entirely to YC, but right. the fact of the matter is YC is a very different institution today than it was when it first released that pre-money safe eight years ago or whenever. Right. Well, let's talk about the next round after convertibles. So your first price yeah. round. Some people, I at some ABA meetings, um, I've seen some lawyers pipe up and say, hey, they're in favor of price rounds as soon as possible and just kind of set a price and then go ahead yeah. and get it on the cap table. For uh, most folks, you have a, a, you know one or two convertible rounds and then your first price round. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What do you like to use for that? What do you see? Yeah, so I, I would say there's no perfect instrument, right? Every instrument, convertible, safe, equity, has pluses and minuses. The, the, the pluses of the convertible notes and safes is simplicity. I mean, it's it, they're dramatically faster to close, lower legal fees, less negotiation. And in early stage, there's value to that. In equity rounds, the downside to equity, right, is it's more complex. I mean, it's gonna be, you know, at least three times the legal fees, right? To right. do even a basic equity round, a seed equity round, um, you know, relative to a safe. To do an MVCA, and I'll, I'll describe these terms a little bit more. An MVCA equity round is going to be, you know, eight times the legal fees, right? Right. Yeah. Especially now. Now there's like twelve documents. It used to be eight or nine, right. which I thought was right. Not enough. And, and so, you know, if if you're if you're raising half a million dollars, a million dollars, a million and a half, I think it's a legitimate question. Like, you know, acknowledging the benefits of an equity round, is it just worth it to deal with that complexity, right? And there's also an issue of, you know, there's 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 invest there's rounds in which you have a lead investor, and there's what you call party rounds, 
you know, p- party rounds, which are, are I see a lot of, are like ten or twenty, fifty thousand dollar checks. You I know, don't know that term. Is that party party round? Okay, party party round. Yeah, you hear it a lot, and I hear it a lot at least. And and when you have a party round structure, you know, wh- when you're negotiating an equity round, typically some investor and their lawyers is negotiating the terms across from you. And that typically requires having someone who views themselves as the lead. They're writing a much bigger check. Maybe they're taking a board seat. You know, you can't do that in a party round, right? I mean, because everyone's a small check. And so that, so I, I think it's, I definitely am not in the camp of equity always or equity as soon as possible. I think there are ways to tweak convertible notes and safes economically, as we've discussed, dealing with the valuation caps and the denominators right. and post money, all this stuff. But yeah, I mean, w- once you're at a million five, two, three million dollars, um, that's the numbers start, I think, favoring equity um, because, you know, um, one downside of convertible notes and safes is, is the valuation cap is a cap. It's not a hardened valuation. And I think in this downturn we're in right now, a lot of startups are understanding that better. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Because you, you raised at a you know a stratospheric valuation cap, assuming the next round would be an up round, and then you know the market tanks, and now your safe or note investors are getting a dramatically lower conversion than when the yeah. cap was. Um, so the value of a, of an equity round is partly you're hardening the valuation. Right. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. If you have obviously, if you have a uh, another convertible or you have a uh, price round at a valuation that's lower than the valuation cap of the convertible, it really doesn't hurt you that bad, except reputation-wise. Whereas if you right. had a previous equity round at like 10 million, and then you're raising another equity round yeah. at 5 million. Uh, exactly. It's like, it's like full ratchet anti-dilution. So, so the value of equity is certainty. It's, it's, you know, yes, there's upfront more cost, more negotiation, but you 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 are hardening rights and economics at closing as opposed to having these sort of variable floating things that convertible notes and safes have. And and, and I think at least at seed stage and and, and seed again, again I I've seen $10 million seed rounds. I've seen right. $500,000. The, the terms seed and series A kind of blur into each other today, but you know for for, for the single digit millions you know, there there is this kind of equity round called seed equity, series seed, right? You sometimes hear series double A, and they're sort of like the MVCA docs stripped down to like twenty percent of the content. Right? Yeah, let's talk about that because there's two versions out there. There's a Fenwick and West version, series seed, yeah. com, I believe, and then there's a Cooley version that's out there. There might be some others. We did a yeah. deal the other day where the law firm had their own docs, which didn't help at all. Maybe we can talk talk about that a little bit. So when, when, yeah. when you're having a series uh, seed, Jose, do you have your own docs or do you use one of these? We, others? Use, we, we, we use a tweaked version of Cooley's. So, okay. so and, and, I, and I think Cooley serves a, a function there, right? Cooley Go, I mean, you know, again, going back to boutiques versus big law, we don't see ourselves as competing with Cooley in many cases. Right. And plus it's California. That There seem to be California-centric, at least in our right. experience. Right, right. So, 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 but but I think Cooley has a brand in the same way that YC has a brand and, mm-hmm. you know, and Sequoia has a brand. And so there is value in being able to point to some salient known brand. This is some kind of standard, 
Um, and Cooley, at least, is a law firm that represents companies as opposed to being YC, which is very much on one side of the table, right? <laughs> um, you know, and, and so we typically just say, look, we're going to use Cooley's a tweaked version. We'll redline against the Cooley templates. So you can see it. Um, and, and we'll go from there. And, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you know, again, some investors look at the Series C docs and are like, this is not good enough. Want the full MVCA. And at that point, it becomes a discussion of, okay, do we have to go to an MVCA structure, which is far more complicated, expensive, et cetera, or do we just punt and go to a safe or a convertible note? Now, a lot of times the company is paying the legal fees for the investors. Now, the if somebody's says, time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if somebody says, no, let's not use Series C docs, let's use full NVCA, is that a negotiating point where you can say, well, okay, but we shouldn't be picking up your legal costs then? Or uh, does that I, ever. I, I'm not a fan. Again, as a lawyer exclusively for companies, I obviously am not a fan of companies paying investors' legal fees. Um, but candidly, I'd say it's one in 40 deals where we get in mm -hmm. equity rounds. I mean, convertible notes and safes, investors often pay themselves, right? right. Um, you know, because there's minimal review. But in equity rounds, the vast majority of the time, it's, it's the company paying for the investor fees. And, and the real negotiation point is not whether or not we're paying. It's, it's what are, where are we going to cap it at, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and I do think there's some value. I mean, sometimes you'll hear, you know, people being like, well, it's just, you know, 30 versus 20 versus 40. It's just a small amount of money. That's true, right? But, you know, I, I, can't, I can't remember the last time we set an investor's legal fees at 40K and it didn't end up being 40K, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, there, there, there's an incentive dynamic there that it, whatever you place the cap at, it's usually going to hit it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I think that having a having a lower cap can sometimes streamline things a little bit. Sometimes for our deals, the company will say, oh, you know, have this very friendly investor, very friendly investor. They want preferred stock, but no bells and whistles, very friendly. And then so we'll have a preferred stock. We have a template preferred stock agreement that only gives them the liquidity preference. And then that's it. And then, okay. Oh, well, yeah, like z zero rights. They, <laughs> they never accept it. They they yeah. say, oh, we're not that friendly. <laughs> you know, And again, I, I think that that gets into this issue of why convertible notes and safes have a place, right? It's like right. some investors would prefer to, to not have hardened, simple rights. They prefer mm. to have you know, a, a more robust negotiation later in an MVCA round and just give me a note or just give me a safe. And, and, and at least I know that in the future when it converts, I'm going to have all the bells and whistles, right? But this is, this is why I've often been a proponent of convertible notes, right? Is, is, you know, in exchange for that trade, I'm, I'm taking fewer rights up front. I do think that a reasonable maturity date is at least some accountability right. Right. Yeah. To kind of balance things out, because you, you did read quite a bit about in the early pre-money safe days of companies going six, seven, eight years with just subsequent rounds of safes and investors never getting converted. You know, and it's and I think that's a legitimate problem in many cases. Yeah. And a maturity date of 12 months is just wildly optimistic. I mean, no, I, think I, 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 I would say usually I mean, 18 is the lowest. But, you yeah, know, I think I, I, I try to say 24 to 36, I think, is reasonable yeah. 
you know, it's, it's enough time to make a few mistakes and, and try again, but by, by three years, it's like, okay, at least, and, and right. it's important to realize, I mean, you, you I, I think people who love safes talk about maturity of convertible notes as this is like nuclear event. I, I rarely <laughs> see, I rarely see a maturity date actually blow up a company, right? Because the investors- yeah. And if you draft it right, you then you you make them go through a bunch of hoops before they can declare an event of default. You got to have right. a representative and all this. Right. Others. I mean, in most cases, it just forces a conversation and you make right. some adjustments, you extend it. But, but having that forced conversation, again, as a company lawyer, right, from a governance perspective, um, I think it's valuable for companies that just are kind of stalling at some point. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Let's move on to the NBCA docs. So yep. uh, the NBCA docs at first, I believe that the idea was that you put it. And for those uh, for those listeners who might not be familiar with the NBCA docs, they are a standard set of documents by the National Venture Capital Association. It's a bunch of brackets. You go in, it is a ton of bracketed terms. And the original idea, as I understand it, as it's been presented to me, is that uh, lawyers such as Jose and myself, we would put in the bracketed items that were most relevant to our situation. So we would put that in and that has changed somewhat where now you have to justify taking anything out. Now the default is to have all these terms and to give the investor all these terms. Yeah, well, we, we, we definitely right. modify some of the unbracketed stuff unapologetically, mm -hmm. um, but I, we still use the MBCA as, I mean, I, again, I, I think just being able to redline against something yeah. is valuable, but you don't, need to, you don't need to treat the templates as sort of, you know, God. They're, they're just they're just starting language that provide a common framework for then an honest discussion about what what the term should be. Yeah, but but I mean I, I've written before about all these templates you find online, the YC templates, the the MBCA, and I, I think there's value in standardized language and being able to redline. But there's there's all still conflicts of interest and ways in which what I call repeat players. The VCs are repeat players. I, I think they have a, they have a certain sway over the legal industry, and these templates that individual companies and founders don't. And so, I think if you're a company lawyer, you should be willing to sometimes unapologetically say, "Yeah, I'm, I know that's the, that's the template, but we're going to move something." Right? Now, you have used the term "one shot" before. One shot players for founders and employees. Why don't you tell us what you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, if if you're a lawyer. And I, I have this post called Relationships and Power in Startup Ecosystems, that lawyers look to connect with people who can bring them business. I mean, that's just, that's part of business development. And venture capitalists are repeat players, multi-shot. They do lots of deals a year. They, they're in the game for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Bi creating a relationship with a VC as a lawyer can be a very lucrative source of referrals. Whereas founders as individuals are sticking to one company for 10 right. years, 15 years, you know, that company could be a lot of work, but as a source of referrals, it's not typically not going to be nearly as lucrative. And so there's this game that you see, I, th I see it, you know, in the VC world where lawyers will, you know, build relationships with VC firms and use those firms to those firms to to get company side work um and the problem is and i call it a problem others may disagree is a first-time entrepreneur is coming to you as a lawyer for counsel as a kind of equalizer 
you know, like they know far less than the VC does. But if you rely on that VC for referrals and all kinds of stuff, it's, I mean, how how can you not say it's going to influence, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Are you really going to fight tooth and nail against this person? Yeah, exactly. And so, so that's why, you know, I tell people, it's like, look, I mean, the, the game can be incestuous and, and, and some of these players build brands that are so large that allow them to create templates, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and those templates, they'll say, oh, we're, we're using these templates to save you legal fees, right? And I always tell founders, look, at my rate, it takes me 20 minutes to save you millions of dollars, right? <laughs> right, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know it's, 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 it's like yeah. appreciate templates, appreciate standardization and all this stuff, but this whole idea that they, they exist purely to save you legal fees is just nonsense. I mean, you probably get the same emails as me, Jose. It's like, oh, the investor said that it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure they did, right? You know, you know, yeah. but, but but no, I mean, it's like there's a reason why there's rules around conflicts of interest in the legal profession, right? Because our, we have a job to do and, and founders need to be aware of that and be careful, and, including with these templates. Yeah. Uh, well, great. Was well, there anything else that you'd like to mention uh, to the audience about representing companies and uh, financing rounds? There's a lot more that we could uh, we could talk about. So I look forward to having you. you know, I, I, I would just say the last point kind of goes to I mean, we already covered it, you know, fa- friends and family seed MBCA for Series A and Series B. And one thing that I often discuss is is short versus long term sheets. Right. Mm. Um, you know, v- VCs, I often find, love to say that a short term sheet is better. One pager, right? We should just kind of just, just you know, sign it up and let's go. But there's a problem. <laughs> um, that term sheet has a no shop. And, and so friends, you know, v- VCs can be super friendly and, and, oh, yeah, over beers. Like, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. But at the ter- pre-no shop, those VCs are often competing with other VCs, right? If it's a competitive deal, you have more leverage before signing that no shop. Right. Once and the no shop the, will be one of the few binding things in the term sheet. Yeah. Once you have the once you sign a term sheet, you're stuck at least for 30 to 45 days. And so, you know, I actually prefer not full five, six, seven page term sheets, but the most material stuff veto rights, board composition, nuances around, you know, the valuation, ca- the, the liquidation preference. I think you should have a somewhat lengthier, more detailed term sheet. That way that, you know, there, there's just, you know, once you sign it, there's not much negotiation left. It's just, you know, get the MBCA, move it around in the right, right. places. But I often see founders get really tripped up when they sign these super short term sheets and, and, it, and it just says standard terms, air quotes standard. <laughs> right. You know, and, and, then it, term. Yeah. and then after the after the term sheet signed with a no shop, you're now stuck. It becomes this battle of, you know, standards. Right. And you, you shot yourself in the foot accepting that. Yeah. And a lot of times a company needs money and the idea of kind of waiting until the no shop expires. No, I mean, and, and, and again, there, there there's this interesting dynamic in the VC ecosystem where VCs will say this is this is the fact it's founder friendly to have a short term sheet. We're so simple. We're so easy. It's not founder friendly, right? It's actually <laughs> it's actually a way to get you get you stuck, so that they can right. then later on when when you need the money and you've already incurred legal fees and have a no shop suddenly say, oh, well, this this is standard, even though it's not. 
Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks so much. I can uh, I can see companies are in good hands with you, Jose. Uh, congratulations on uh, on starting the firm, on starting Optimal Counsel. Yeah. And uh, you said uh, uh, going to be up to fifteen lawyers soon. We'll be we'll be fifteen pretty soon. Yeah. And okay. Look, looking to grow further. It's exciting. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining us. We hope to have you on the show again. Enjoy the rest of your fall. And to the listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of VC Law brought to you by the American Bar Association. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.